Today we're going to pick up in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 39. And what I believe happens here is that in the scripture we'll read this morning, Luke 2, 39, we come to the conclusion of Luke's introduction to his gospel. He spends two chapters introducing his gospel, and here is the conclusion of his introduction. He has, in these first two chapters, developed some major themes that will provide the framework for the rest of his gospel. And I believe one of those major themes has been introducing the importance of the favor of God. One of his major themes which he introduces is establishing the importance of the favor of God. We're going to talk about that this morning. Back in Luke 1.23, hold your place there in chapter 2 and look at Luke 1.23. We see that after Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, became pregnant, that she goes down and finds this out in verse 25. She says... The Lord has shown favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Remember now that the meaning in the New Testament of grace is unmerited favor. So upon the first introduction to the mother of John the Baptist, we see that she is a woman who has found favor with God. So in the New Testament, grace and favor are interchangeable. So we take note that when Elizabeth recognizes God's favor upon her life, she says that it becomes God's grace to her and removes the reproach or disgrace. So God's favor upon her life, her, his grace is the opposite of disgrace in her life. So once we have God's favor, it takes away reproach. Now if you'll go on in that first chapter, look at verse 28. Our first introduction of Mary is that the angel uh, refers to her as highly favored one. Now it is important for us to note that this comes directly after Elizabeth's reference to the favor of God being upon her life as well. So Luke does not differentiate between uh, Elizabeth and Mary to their being favor. There's both favors on these two individuals. And I think Luke presents these two stories for an important reason not to elevate Mary in any human sense, but to say it's all based on God's favor the way he worked in both of their lives. Amen? So we find that when Mary is introduced as highly favored one, she has trouble with this introduction. And the angel restates his introduction in a different way. Verse 30, he says, you have found favor with God. Very similar to how Elizabeth responded to the situation in her life becoming pregnant with John the Baptist. You have found favor with God. Understand that God's favor upon someone's life does not rest on them because they have intrinsically different characteristics than other human beings. God's favor rests on his nature alone as being a good and loving God who loves people unconditionally. 
That's why his favor was upon Elizabeth. That's why his favor was upon Mary because he is a good and loving God who loves people unconditionally. So in the first chapter of Luke, we see this developing theme of favor with God and how God works in people's life. So our first introduction in the Gospel of Luke to Mary is that there's favor upon her life. I want you to understand something today. That the favor of God represents God's sovereignty and orchestration of events in the life of a person. God's favor represents his sovereignty in the life of an individual. That he orchestrates the life of an individual for his purposes. I mean, at this time, to be a 16, 17 young lady who's found to be pregnant with child without being married to a husband, this does not look like a situation of favor. It looks like a really, really bad situation because she's going to be disgraced to her family. Her husband wants to put her away. She's going to be ashamed. But because it's of the Holy Spirit, even a bleak situation for the purposes of God is God's favor. Oh, man, that's good. Even a bad situation for God's purposes is his favor in our life. So the favor of God upon someone's life rests in the fact that God is in control. That he is the one who receives the glory. And your success in life and in salvation will be because of God's good nature and his pleasure towards you. In shorter terms. Because of the favor of God on the life of a believer. We shouldn't stress about... The mundane problems of life. If God is in control, if God is sovereign, if he is omnipotent and his favor is upon our life, we're believers, we're children of God, then we should not stress about the mundane problems of life. Because in the end, he's in control, not us. When we worry about the situation in life, we are basically telling God that he doesn't know what he's doing. Have you ever thought about that? When you feel like God's doing something wrong, you're telling him, you're not supposed to do it this way. <laughs> and that's what happened in the Old Testament, and it didn't work out good for some people. God is in control. It is impossible for us who are saved by God's grace, by who, who rest in the favor of God upon our life, it is impossible for us to worship a sovereign God who is in control and be worried at the same time. We cannot do that. It is impossible for us to stress about the details of life while we neglect our trust in God's providence. We sang that hymn this morning. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Trust is the opposite of worry. When we trust in Jesus, we defeat the, the uh, uh, weapon of worry. Because trust means God's in control. God, I'm not going to worry. I'm going to trust you. So when situations are life, when they become problematic, we can either worry and give credit to the enemy, or we can trust and give credit to God. Now, I'm looking at their track record as recorded in Scripture, and I think God's proven himself. Amen? We can trust in him. Matter of fact, this is not just a major theme in Luke, but also for the Gospels of well. In Jesus' longest sermon, probably the most important sermon ever preached, called the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, 25, Jesus says, four times do not worry. Do not worry about tomorrow. Do not worry about what you will eat or what you will wear. 
do not worry because if God takes care of the birds, he'll take care of us. And if he takes us on home to glory, then we're better off anyway. Matter of fact, in the entire Bible, I've heard it's been said that 365 times it is recorded, do not fear. So fear and worry is the opposite of trust. When we're in a relationship with Christ, we need not fear or worry about life. We can say this today, that Luke is establishing a theme in his introductions, but also the Gospels are establishing a theme, and that theme is what I would call resting in the favor of God. Let's look at this scripture for a moment. Luke 2.39 says this, that when they, being Mary and Joseph, had performed all the things according to the law of the Lord... After Jesus had been circumcised and presented at the temple, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Somebody say grace. Somebody say favor. Those words are interchangeable. The grace of God was upon him. The favor of God was upon his son. Now, picking up verse 41, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both, li- both listening to them and asking them questions. All who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And Jesus said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Number one, I want us to know that because Jesus rested in the favor of God, this means that God was going to orchestrate all circumstances of Jesus' life for his glory. I want us to start back in verse 40 as it says, the favor of God, the grace of God was upon him. We know this, that the favor of God the Father was upon God the Son. As I mentioned in the introduction, we find that when Luke mentions that the grace of God was upon Jesus or the favor of God was upon Jesus, he is telling us that God is going to orchestrate his life for a greater purpose. God never places favor on someone's life for a selfish reason. No, God's purpose is always greater than ourselves because it is something that is going to bring glory to him. This is the difference in the prosperity gospel and the gospel of God's glory. That what looks like a bad situation in our life, which wouldn't be prosperity. What looks like a bad situation will actually be used for the glory of God. 
So this is what God's favor means. He's going to orchestrate our life, life of Christ, for his glory. Up to this point in the story, Jesus has been just a little baby, a little child. But what happens here is there's a transition. There's actually 12 years that occurs in two verses. He goes from being a baby at the temple to being a 12-year-old boy. So we have 12 years in two verses. And the simple indication that we have of how his life went is that the favor of God was upon him. God was orchestrating his life, using everything to raise up his son to die for humanity. So what happens is a significant shift in Luke's mentioning of who Jesus is. Because Luke goes from mentioning Jesus as a child to now using his name Jesus. And we we see no longer is Mary and Martha in control of this little baby. Now it's God who's in control of the life of his child. This is the only story in the Gospels where we find an indication about Jesus in his adolescent years. In 30 years of his life, we find one story about his adolescence. And what we can get is this, that he includes this to show that Jesus' whole life fits in the sovereignty of God's orchestration. That God is using everything for his glory. We find this further developed in the prayer of Simeon. We talked about this a few weeks ago. That Simeon addresses God as sovereign Lord. The theme of God's sovereignty and God's grace are going hand in hand in the gospel of Luke. God's sovereignty and grace always goes hand in hand. It was God's sovereignty that orchestrated a people in the desert who would come to know his nature as a God who is faithful, a God who preserves his people, and a God who will fulfill his purpose. It was God's sovereignty from the beginning of chapter uh, Genesis chapter 3 where we see God's declaration to the serpent that the seed of Eve was going to crush his head. That God was sovereign all the way from the beginning. As scripture says, he declares the end from the beginning. And even more than that, God declared before the foundation of the world that his son would be slain. The lamb would be slain for him raising a bride for himself. Throughout the highway of scripture, God's sovereignty was the engine and his grace was the key. His sovereignty was always powering the vehicle of scripture and narrative and it was because of his grace that he was raising up a people for himself. It was his grace that elected a man named Abraham to receive the promises of being a blessing to the whole world. It was his grace that elected a man named Moses to be a deliverer of Abraham's people out of slavery in Egypt. It was God's grace that went to Pharaoh ten separate times asking Pharaoh to change his repentant heart. But in due time, the patience of the Lord towards his enemies was trumped by the love of the Lord towards his people. It was God's grace that split the waters so that his people could walk to freedom. But it was his sovereignty that made those same waters crash upon the armies of Egypt. It was God's grace that raised forth a a young king child named Solomon who would build a dwelling place of the Lord, a tabernacle for God's presence. And it was God's grace that called forth a virgin to bear his only son And his sovereignty that raised up a hard-hearted people who would crucify him. 
It was God's grace that provided Christ on that tree as a payment for our sins. But it was God's sovereignty that raised him from the dead. God's sovereignty and his grace have always gone hand in hand. They work together just like cookies and milk, just like coffee and cream, just like bacon and everything. They go hand in hand together. God's sovereignty is always for his purposes of his grace. Indeed, God has orchestrated the whole universe to bear witness that he is holy, holy, holy. And as Ephesians 1.16 declares, that it is our adoption as children of God for the praise of the glory of his grace. All glory to God points to his graceful attributes. God orchestrated the life of Jesus so that we would know the nature of his grace. God orchestrated your own salvation so that you and I would know the nature of his grace. And may I mention today that based on my first point, that you and I will never know the grace of God apart from the person who is Jesus Christ. That the grace of God was upon Christ, and that's where we need to look for the grace of God, is the person and work of Jesus Christ. We can look for the grace of God in many places, but we will never find it apart from Jesus. That brings me to my second point today. When we look for Jesus in the wrong places, we won't find him. When we spend our time looking for grace, for peace in the wrong places, we won't find the revelation of God. It may seem in this story about Mary that Mary lost Jesus. But what we find is Jesus all along knew what he was doing. Jesus all along knew where he was. (laughs) This story is not about the ability of a parent to keep up with their child. It's about the ability of God's son to stay in the business of God the Father. It's not about Mary losing Jesus. It's about Jesus staying plugged into the Father. That's what the essence of this story is. And what I find so interesting is that for three days, they looked everywhere else except the temple. Well, maybe Jesus is down at the lake fishing uh, where the fishermen are. Maybe Jesus is down at the market playing with the boys. Maybe he is at a friend's house doing all those typical things an adolescent boy would be doing. But the point of the story also is that Jesus was never the typical adolescent boy. He wasn't playing at the lake. He wasn't running around in the market. He was at the place of his father. I don't know about you, but when I was an adolescent, I was constantly revealing my nature as a fleshly, carnal human being. If you would have known me when I was 12 years old, you would say there was no way that that boy is going to be a preacher. I literally, (laughs) my Sunday school teacher couldn't stand me. I mean, I got kicked out of Sunday school. They make me go sit in the hallway. I was the worst one in youth group. I was the one getting into the most trouble. On and on and on, getting sent to detention in middle school. I mean, 12 years old, I was just a handful. I was revealing my nature, and my nature was a worldly human being. But at 12 years old, Jesus was revealing his nature which was of the Spirit. So part of the story is that at 12 years old, Jesus wasn't your typical adolescent boy. He was revealing the Spirit of God that was upon him. 
I think that maybe Luke included this whole story to say that the worst that ever happened to the little boy Jesus was that he was absent from his family but present at the family of God. The worst that Mary ever encountered was that when Jesus was missing, he was sitting in church. And that's not really a bad thing. The essence is it's not really a bad thing. That Jesus was always about the Father's business from day one until day last. And the interesting part is that Mary and Joseph didn't know this. It's like for a moment they were caught up with family and festivities and and riding back home or processing back home. And they didn't realize that the whole Passover was pointing to him. The whole festivity was pointing to Jesus. The party was about him. And the greatest revelation of the party was probably those who were discussing the nature of what God did at the temple. So maybe, I don't know, maybe they went, they sacrificed the lamb, they ate together. And maybe they never made it to talk about the scriptures. But Jesus is like, you know what, this whole thing is about me. I'm going to go to the important place. He went to church. During this time, in Jerusalem, there were probably over 100,000 lambs being sacrificed at Passover. I mean, they were having a huge festival. 100,000 lambs being sacrificed at Passover. But the main lamb of God was sitting in the temple. The innocent, spotless lamb was there before the teachers of the word, interviewing them, questioning them, revealing his nature. And so what I gather is that they were looking for Jesus apart from the place of God. They were looking to find Christ apart from the place where he is most revealed, and that is in the context of the teaching of the Scriptures. Christ is most revealed in the context of the Scriptures, and they were being discussed at the temple. So Mary and Joseph were looking for Christ everywhere else except the context where he is most fully known. Listen to this. They found Jesus among the teachers and the scriptures of the temple. There are a lot of people today who are looking to find the contentment that can only come through Christ, but they're looking in a relationship, they're looking in activity, in success, in popularity, in material possessions, all these other things. But until we look to the place where Jesus is revealed, we won't find him. The place where we can come to know him is where he's revealed himself. And that is in the revelation of God through scripture. Even among the Christian community today, there is a lot of push to find God within an experience or a program or a system or an emotional experience. And those things are not intrinsically bad. But we will never find in an experience what we can only find Through Christ. We'll never find a program that matches Jesus. We're never going to find an emotion that matches Jesus. Here's the problem is some people seek emotion or some people seek an experience. But that detracts from the person. I don't get around Robert so I can laugh. But normally what happens is when I get around Robert I do laugh. So I'm not seeking an emotion. I'm seeking a person. That's the same thing with Christ. We don't go to Christ for the benefits. We go to Christ for himself. And when we find him, all those things will flow out of it. 
But apart from the preaching of his word, there's not going to be a revelation of Jesus. I saw a picture, a little cartoon on Facebook. It had this boardroom meeting, and there was like a preacher saying, we need revival, how can we get it? And one person said, well, well maybe we can um, have emotion. And another person said, maybe we can have experience. And then the last guy said, maybe we can just preach the gospel. And they were making fun of the last guy because like, that's so silly, but it's the truth. There is no revival experience apart from the revival person. And that comes through the cross. We must know today that we can only find Christ through the place where he dwells. That is the people of God and the word of God. And this is the essence of what C.S. Lewis said. That God cannot give us a happiness apart from himself. Because it does not exist. There is no happiness apart from the person of God himself. The last thing I want us to know is this. We must destroy the idol of worry in order to worship the God of grace. I like verse 48 which says this. Mary says to Jesus, your father and I have been looking for you anxiously. That means searching with anxiety. The ESV says that they have been searching with great distress. The King James says they've been searching with great sorrow. So when, Jesus, when Mary comes to Jesus, her question is framed in this manner. She says, why did you treat us this way? Why did you make us worry? Why did you make us stressed out? Why did you make me have anxiety? Don't we ask Jesus that same question? Jesus, why did you put me through this scenario? Jesus, why did you cause this to happen to me because it's come sorrow into my life? Jesus, why did you cause this pain to come through this circumstance? And what happens is we question the sovereignty of God in our life. But I love Jesus' response. She says, we've been searching frantically, we've been worrying. And Jesus says, why have you been searching? He says, I didn't bring this stress upon you. You should have known all along I was about my father's business. You should have known all along where I would be. And the reason of your stress is because you didn't know about me. Oh, that's good right there. The reason you are worried is because you didn't have a revelation of what I got to be about. The reason your anxiety and anxiously fretting is because you didn't understand my full nature. If you knew my nature, you would knew God's favor on my life and his orchestration. I've got to be about him. That this whole Passover is about me. And in the revelation of the teaching of the scriptures is where I'm most fully proclaimed. He's coming to say, listen, I'm coming just to hear about my father because maybe, I don't know, maybe my parents have neglected that. Maybe even though he was the son of God at Passover, they weren't talking about the things of God. I'm not sure. But if they would have been focused on his revelation, who he was, they would have known exactly where to look. So their stress and their worry came because of their own lack of knowledge, not because of Jesus. Now this may have been unsettling to his earthly parents, but it was like a wake-up call that his whole life must be about the father's business. I like the translation of the King James there when it says, 
I must be about my father's business. And, and the, the original language says it is absolutely necessary. So he was saying this is the most important thing in my life. That I am about the father's business. So what was Jesus' response to their stress? What was Jesus' response to their pain and their worry? His response was this. Hey, chill out. God's still in control. Chill out. I'm about the things of God. And isn't this the nature of Christians who get busy with the things of life, who get busy with the things of the world, and they lose sight of Jesus? They are focused on friends. They were focused on family. They were focused on circumstance. And they lose sight. They take their eyes off of Christ. And what happens is when we take our eyes off of Christ, then our life suddenly becomes a frantic search to recover that relationship that we had with him. But what we realize is that Jesus has always been where he's supposed to be. That Jesus was never in a different place. He was always in the essential place being about the Father's business. It was not Jesus who left us. It was us who left him. And we wandered away and we looked at the things of this world at the neglect of our relationship with him. In the end, the whole Passover was a story about the sovereignty of God with his people. The whole Passover celebration was about God instructing Israel to sacrifice a lamb so that they would be delivered out of Egypt. And that once they were delivered, that through the lineage of Israel, God would raise up a king who would have a son named Solomon. And in God's providence and sovereignty, Solomon would build a house for the Lord unlike the world had ever seen. So the whole proclamation of Passover was about the sovereignty of God. And it's amazing that Jesus was at the place where his sovereignty was being proclaimed. And that at this temple, his people would for hundreds of years celebrate the nature of their walk with God. The temple of God in Jerusalem, which had been torn down and rebuilt, which had been conquered and then recaptured the temple stood there at Passover hundreds and hundreds of years later after Passover as a declaration and a testimony to the sovereignty of God and what Mary and Joseph found was that after they had wasted their time searching with stress through all the avenues of the world they eventually found God's grace sitting there among God's sovereignty. They eventually found the grace of God in the midst of God's sovereign plan for his people. Now Mary and Joseph could rest in the favor of God, not just upon the life of Christ, but upon every individual who would believe in the person who he was. My friend... The decision for us today is this. You and I have two options. We can stress and fret and sorrow about the situations that we're going through. Or we can simply put our eyes back on Christ. Know more about Him where He has declared. Day in and day out. Draw closer to Him through a relationship. 
and learn to trust. Learn to rest in his favor upon our life. Because I love how Luke introduces the favor of God upon Jesus and then goes directly into their story. If they would have understood God's favor, the stress and worry would have never been there. I believe the stress and worry in your life can be cured by the more we understand God's favor over our salvation. He has sovereignly ordained and orchestrated your own life to place you in a walk with him. And if he has orchestrated your soul, then he'll still orchestrate the details of life. Amen.